friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. the Lord. So now we're ready to go to God's Word. May I invite everybody to please rise from their seats, please, as we read God's Word this morning together. James chapter 1 and verses 13 to 16, please. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this blessed morning that you've given us, O God. What a joy it is to gather together with brothers and sisters, and to worship your most holy name. Our desire, O God, is that your name might be known all over the city of Cebu, all over the province of Cebu, and all over the Philippines. And may your name be renowned all throughout the world. This is our heart's desire, O God, because you are so deserving. And our prayer this morning is that we might be able to glorify you as we listen to the word and apply it to our hearts. I pray for myself as well. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe, Lord, that through the Holy Spirit, you will minister to your people. You will inspire, you will correct, you will rebuke, you will encourage, you will convict. And Lord, we trust that all of these things will take place as the Word of God will be preached this morning. And whatever is going to be achieved, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. Today will be the last installment of a short series that we began last weekend, which we entitled, Who is the Problem? As I mentioned to you last weekend, sometimes when we talk about the subject matter of temptation, it seems like a very simple subject matter. But the truth is, there are many questions relating to temptation. And likewise, one of the things I believe that causes the subject matter of temptation to be quite complicated is because of the fact that we have what Paul Tripp calls as an inner lawyer. We have an inner lawyer in our hearts. And that inner lawyer in our hearts has this tendency to exonerate and justify us even though we might have committed certain sins. So we are quick to dismiss our errors, our wrong ways, 
because of this inner lawyer that we have. And we need to be mindful that the Bible warns us about the human heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful more than anything else. It is desperately sick. And so you and I cannot really trust our hearts. We cannot really trust that inner lawyer inside of us. Because more often than not, we have this tendency to justify ourselves. Not only that, instead of pointing a finger to ourselves, our tendency is to shift the blame to others. We say that it's not our fault, it must be the fault of somebody else. Now, worse than that, sometimes we even get to blame God for the things that we do. And of course, in our previous sermon that we discussed, we said that should not be the case. God is never, ever to be blamed for our failures. In the first place, God is holy and He does not tempt anyone. And so I'd like just to review for us the previous uh, sermon, uh, just in case some of you did not catch it. By the way, we have it on our Facebook page, and we will also post it on our website. So just in case you missed the first installment of the sermon, you can catch it on our Facebook page and on our website. But let me discuss the first point that we shared last week, and point number one is that God is not the problem. We saw that in verses 13 and 16, and we talked about a false view of God in verse 13. Uh, it so happened that there were some people who thought that God was the source of temptation. And interestingly, what we discover in verse 16, which is a call to correct thinking, is that it was the believers who had this false view of God. They were saying that God must be tempting me. And that is why James had to correct that point of view because that is not true at all. And James presented to us the correct view of God, that God is holy and that He cannot possibly tempt anyone. And so that was what we discussed last weekend. So we're now ready to go to part two of our study, and this is where the problem really is. Your lust is the problem. God is not the problem. The problem is our sinful lust. The problem is our own sinful nature. That's where the problem lies. So don't blame God. Blame yourself. Blame your heart. Blame the lust that is in you. Blame the sinful nature, but never, ever blame God. Now, we will also look today at the third point. Your lust will bring more problems, and that is found in verse 15. A lot of people rationalize this way. They say, well, I would like to give in to my lust just this one time. And a lot of people think that if they give in to their lust just one time, that will somehow relieve them of the pressure 
of a very oppressive temptation. But that is not true at all. That kind of thinking is wrong because the moment you feed your lust, the moment you try to satisfy your lust, it grows even hungrier. It, goes, it grows even thirstier. And that is why instead of quenching that thirst, there will be more thirst and more appetite for lustful things. Now, I'm going to share to you two sub-points here as well. First of all, lust will result to sin. And when we say sin here, we're talking about the act of sin or consummated sin. And then finally, we will take a look at the second sub-point wherein lust will result to death. We will expound on that and try to explain to you what that exactly means. So let's begin with point number two. Your lust is the problem. That is found in verse uh, 14. And it reads, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now, before I expound on this, I'd like to make a major point of clarification. Being tempted is not sin in itself. Let me repeat that. Being tempted is not sin in itself. Looking at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are told in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. So the fact that you are being tempted by the evil one or tempted by the world or tempted by your own flesh does not necessarily mean that you are in sin. Now, when does something become a sin? It is when you start dwelling on that temptation and start enjoying it. Let me repeat myself. It is when you start dwelling on the temptation and enjoying it. That is when it becomes sin unto you. I recall a true story of two Christians who came across adult material or uh, an adult movie, otherwise known as pornography. They did not know that they were actually uh, putting in place an adult movie. And so when the movie started in Tagalog, they were saying, Grabe! Grabe! In English, grave. Grave. No, I don't think that would be a, a proper translation. Probably the proper translations, that's terrible. That's terrible. But you know what? They finished the entire movie. So you and I know that they actually failed. You know, they actually failed. They sinned against God. Because the first thing they should have done was that they should have shut off the TV they should have stopped watching that movie. But they just kept on watching it, and they just kept on saying, grabe, grabe. And that is why, friends, we need to be very careful. And again, notice the inner lawyer 
at work once again in these two brothers. Now, when one falls into temptation, in the sense of enjoying the sin or the thought of sin, the source of sin, according to verse 14, is the lust or the sinful nature within us. And that tells us that we must not yield to the lust within us because it attempts to seek to conquer us, and we must not simply allow that. In the first place, if we happen to be believers in Christ, and we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we are called by God to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Most definitely, when temptation comes into the picture, the Holy Spirit gives us that warning in our hearts. There is that sense in our hearts that we are about to enter into failure, and that is why instead of yielding to lust, we need to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And basically, this is the concept that we find in the book of Ephesians, wherein we are told to put off the old man, and instead we are to put on the new man. That is how you and I are able to conquer sin and temptation in our lives. Let us remind ourselves that God redeemed us so that we might become victorious in our lives. We find passages like in Romans chapter 8, which tells us that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. We find a passage in 1 John that says that he who is born of God overcomes the world. We also find passages in 1 John that tell us that he who is born of God does not continue in sin. So most definitely, we have all the equipment and all the empowering of the Holy Spirit at our disposal so that we might have victorious lives. And that is why, once again, when temptation comes, when lust comes, we must not yield to it. Now, this teaches us, this verse teaches us as well, that God is not only not the source of temptation, He is also not the reason why we fall into temptation. God should never be blamed for our failures. One of the basic problems of our perverse human nature is that it is ever prone to blame someone else for its own sins. That is so true with our own sinful nature. We would rather blame others. We would rather get angry with others instead of looking to ourselves introspectively and trying to find out if we are really the ones at fault. And we find this actually in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. And here is where blame shifting actually started. Begin to read with me Genesis 3, starting at verse 6 and following, please. And here's the familiar story. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, and here's what I'd like to point out, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Now here we find something terribly wrong. One of the questions I'd like to be able to ask you this morning, to whom was the provision given directly? Was it to Adam or was it to Eve? The direct commandment and prohibition not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was directly given to Adam. It was not directly given to Eve. Adam being the man or the head of the household was supposed to be the one to instruct his wife Eve about the prohibition. Now you will notice in the other statement that Eve made, it seemed like either she did not comprehend it completely or there was something lacking in the instruction of Adam. Because you will notice that when Eve was confronted by the evil one, the tempter, she said that they are not to eat nor touch the fruit of the, uh, of the, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, let me remind you, there was no such prohibition by God that they are not to touch the fruit. There was a prohibition that they were not to eat of it, but there was no prohibition not to touch it. So what does that tell you? There was some inaccuracy on the part of Eve. So as I mentioned to you, either she was not listening well or Adam was not teaching well. Whatever the situation might be, the, the blame, the bigger blame actually falls on Adam's lap in this particular case. Now, why do I say that? Because he was there as a witness to the temptation. He was there when Eve was being tempted by the serpent. And yet, he did not do anything about it. He did not put his foot down. He did not stand firm. And he allowed his wife to partake of that fruit. And not only that, he also partook of the fruit himself. And that is why the one who is really to be blamed in this particular case was Adam. And notice what he does here. 
Instead of blaming himself, now he becomes his own lawyer, trying to exonerate himself, trying to justify himself, and he shifts the blame. And he now says, it is the woman you gave to be with me. You know what he was doing? He was blaming his wife. He was saying, it's this woman. She was the one who tempted me. She was the one who seduced me into partaking of this fruit. And not only, by the way, was was he blaming the wife, not only was he blaming Eve, he was likewise blaming God. Because notice what he says here, the woman whom you gave to be with me. If you did not give me this woman, I would not have fallen. You made the wrong choice, Lord. This This is the wrong lifetime partner. I just recall a funny incident. I was uh, with a group of Christians doing their retreat. And somebody asked a question, if there is something you would like to change, what is it that you would like to change? And somebody raised his hand, I'd like to change my age. Somebody else raised his hand and said, I'd like to change my wife. Of course, he was kidding. And he took that back. But sometimes that's how it is, really. I mean, kidding aside, sometimes there are some people who think in those terms. I know of uh, a lady who thought that the reason why her marriage was crumbling was because he was not given the perfect will by God. And I think that is rather unfortunate. How do you know if you married the right person? Well, it's very simple. Just look at the marriage contract. If your name is there and your wife's name is there, you married the right person. Now, you might say, well, but, but my spouse is so imperfect. Well, you are also imperfect. Everybody in truth is imperfect. And we all have to change. We all have to grow And definitely, it will not be helpful if we just continue to exonerate ourselves, if we just continue to justify ourselves. It is very important to be able to identify sin in us and not to shift the blame on others because that is our tendency. I recall another proverb which is really wonderful and really teaches what I am sharing to you in, in a very pithy and concise but very strong way. Proverbs 19 verse 3 says this. It says, The foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. The fault is with man. He's the one in sin. He's the one who made the wrong choice. He's the one who made this transgression, and yet, when his life is in ruins, when his life is in chaos, the Bible says he rages against the Lord. He raises his fist against God and says, Lord, this is your fault. Some people even get to say, well, Lord, you made me this way, so don't blame me. Well, God never makes you a sinner. You are a sinner by choice. 
you make the wrong choices by yourself. Not because God was tempting you. That was what we were discussing last time around. Now, I like what Philo said. He was known to have said, when the mind has sinned and removed itself from virtue, it lays blame on divine causes attributing to God its own change. Let's say it again. When the mind has sinned and removed itself from virtue, it lays the blame on divine causes attributing to God its own change. Now that is so true with us and that is actually what complicates the subject matter of temptation. Now we go to the third point of our sermon and here we will discuss your lust will bring more problems. And that is found in verse 15. And this is what it says. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Lust results to sin. That's the first sub-point. Sinning is not just doing something wrong. It's not the action, you know, it's not just the act that, that makes it a sin. The mind dwelling on temptation is sin in itself already. So even if you have not acted out what is already present in your mind, it's already a sin. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said? If you hate your brother, you have already committed murder. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you have already committed adultery. So even before the act... It is already a sin if it is lingering in the mind. Somebody said that an act of adultery did not just happen just like that. An act of adultery has been happening in the mind for several years. It's been happening there in the mind. And so the act is simply a byproduct of what has been happening in the mind all along. And that is why we are called by God to renew our minds. We are called by God to dwell on lovely, godly thoughts. We are told to let our mind to dwell on good things, on beautiful things. That is where our mind should rest. The book of Proverbs likewise tells us that we need to guard our hearts. My wife was sharing about that thought in the worship retreat, that we need to guard our hearts. For from it is the wellspring of life. And yet sometimes we are not to, we're not on our toes at times. We do not guard our hearts. We do not guard what, what comes into our minds. And that is why we find ourselves falling and failing. Let us not dwell with temptation, and sometimes the best way to do it is simply to flee from it. I like what Chuck Swindle said in his book, Three Steps Forward, Two Steps Back. Now, let me quote to you what he wrote. He said, do not try to coexist peacefully with temptation. If you are weakened by certain kinds of music, you are playing into the hands of Satan himself to listen to it. If you are weakened by certain pictures that bring your eyes, things that build desires within you, 
that you cannot handle, then you are not countering sin and temptation. You are tolerating it. You are fertilizing it. You are prompting it. If the newsstand is something you cannot handle, stay away from it. Quit clocking your tongue and shaking your head as you linger over the pages. If you are weakened by relationships with certain people, abstain from them. There is a name for folks who linger and try to reason with lust. And it is spelled V-I-C-T-I-M. Victim. That is what happens when you linger and try to reason with lust. Some people like to live on the edges for as long as they have not crossed the boundaries they feel they're safe. Actually, when you live on the edge, you're putting yourself at risk. Stay away as far as possible from temptation. You and I know our weaknesses. We're not just willing to admit it. And that is why sometimes our problem is instead of fleeing away from temptation, we draw near to temptation. Whereas the Bible actually exhorts us that we are to flee from youthful lusts. And that is what we need to do. And sometimes we are not that careful. Now we find here the end result. It says when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James now relates to us the process of consummated sin. Lust in this context speaks about the enjoyment of the temptation. You are now beginning to enjoy the temptation. What it would produce is it will later spring into an act of sin. That is what is going to happen. That is why if you nurture temptation, you're only strengthening that sinful nature within you. And friends, there will be great regret. I recall an African woman who advised her teenage son, and this is what she said, Son, be very careful. Ten minutes of pleasure may mean a lifetime of misery. Such wisdom from this woman. Ten minutes of pleasure might mean a lifetime of misery. You still probably recall that story that I shared to you some time back of this man who went to a nightclub and he saw this extremely attractive woman by the bar. To make a long story short, they made short conversation and it ended in a one-night stand in a motel or in a hotel room. And so he had the blast of his life, so to speak. He woke up in the morning, however, finding a bed that only contained him. The woman was gone. And so when he went to the bathroom, he saw on the mirror in the bathroom, written in lipstick, welcome to the wonderful world 
of AIDS. Ten minutes of pleasure, a lifetime of misery. And that's the reason why we have to be very careful about the choices that we make. Sometimes we think that by giving in to our lust, we will be relieved. Let me tell you, you will not be relieved. That sinful lust within you will grow hungrier and hungrier by the day. It wants to be fed. And once it gets fed, it will grow even hungrier. And you will want more and more and more. And that is the very nature of lust. And that is why right now there are many marriages that are suffering. There are many men and even women who are struggling right now. Because it is so easy to access pornography right now. Just one click, just one push of the button, and you're there already. And if you are not careful, if you do not stop this deadly habit, it's going to mess up your life. It's going to take away a lot of things from you, and you will later on regret it. And the difficult thing is to get out of it. It is like opium. It is like drugs. You get addicted to these things. It's hard to withdraw yourself from these things. It's going to be very difficult. In the same way that people who try to withdraw from drugs struggle, turn cold turkey, it's going to be very difficult for you to withdraw from the addiction of pornography. And that is why, friends, I believe this, this subject matter that James is sharing to us is indeed very important, most especially to this generation. I was, I was talking to one Filipino-American manager at IT Park. He came from San Francisco, and he, he told me, you know what, I really got surprised. When you are in a call center field, it's no different from San Francisco. It is very, very similar. And so, friends, yes, I believe there are many, many people who are struggling, are having great difficulty with lust, most especially. And that's why I am praying to God that this sermon this morning is going to ring a bell, a very strong bell in the hearts of people. If you are not yet in this bondage, be careful that you step into it. If you are in this bondage, there's still room for repentance. Because after all, the empowering of God, the grace of God is sufficient and able to lift you out of that miry clay. He can take you out of that mud of sin. By the way, when a person is confronted with alluring temptation, he sees only the attractiveness of the desired object. God is almost forgotten in that kind of a situation. You even forget about the warnings of the Scripture. You forget about the verses that you have learned. You forget about the sermons you've heard. The only thing that becomes so huge and so big in your mind's eye is the attractiveness of this desired object. And it becomes more and more beautiful. The more you stare at it, 
the more beautiful and the more attractive it becomes. And that is why the Bible is correct when it says, flee from temptation. When we allow our minds to just dwell on lustful things, you can be sure failure is on the way. It is on the way. And the sad part, which brings us to our second sub-point, is that this sin, this act of sin, will result to death. Let me read to you the ending verse. It says, And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. When the act or thought of sin happens, it brings forth death. Now, death means separation. That's the basic meaning of death. That is why when we talk about physical death, what are we talking about? We're talking about the separation of the spirit from the body. There's a separation that takes place. So the moment the spirit leaves the body, you're dead, physically dead. But the basic meaning of death is really separation. And I believe that what James was talking about here was the broader meaning of death. Not just the peculiar or, or particular specific meaning of physical death. I believe he was talking about death in, in its various expressions and manifestations. One would be the death of peace and joy. Remember what happened to David? He saw this, this woman who was bathing, who was naked. I don't think Bathsheba was trying to tempt him. That was simply, you know, how it was at that time. The bathrooms were not like our bathrooms, which are basically secluded. The problem with David was when he saw this woman bathing, he did not stop looking. He kept on looking. And worse than that, he sends a messenger to fetch Bathsheba. And to make a long story short, he engages this woman in an affair which produces a pregnancy. And David tried to, tried to fool the husband, Uriah, by making him drunk and going home so that he could have sex with his wife so that he would think that the baby in Bathsheba's womb was his own baby, not David's. When he failed to do that, he puts Uriah in the front line of battle. Uriah dies. David thinks that he is freed from condemnation. But the truth of the matter was he lost his joy. And that is why in one of the penitential psalms, he cries out, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because that's what he lost. Previously, he just enjoyed going to the house of the Lord. He enjoyed being in the presence of the Lord. But now all of that was gone. The intimacy was gone. There was now a death, so to speak, with the joy that he previously had. There was a separation. Joy was removed from him. Peace was removed from him. Isaiah was correct when he said, there is no peace for the wicked. 
And that is exactly what happens when we commit sin. We lose our peace. We lose our joy. And we miss out on the best things in life. Because the Bible says, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. In His presence is fullness of joy. It doesn't get any better than that. Everything else that the world will give to us will be surface happiness. It will be shallow happiness. What the world gives is actually artificial happiness. It will not last long. It will just be a quick fix which easily will desert you. When you start sleeping, waking up in the morning, it's gone. It's no longer present. Joy and peace, however, abides with the man who abides in the Lord. And when you have tasted of the goodness of the Lord, you will not exchange it for anything else. It is something that you will truly treasure. David knew exactly what he had lost. He lost his peace and he lost his joy. Death could also mean here the death of a relationship. I know of a relationship that was broken because the wife caught her husband chatting with another woman. When she saw that, she took the whole screen and threw it on the floor. Destroyed everything, the CPU, the screen. It was the beginning of the end. Eventually, that marriage failed. They're now separated. I know of another marriage that, that failed because the man was hooked into pornography. It was then, when that was discovered, it was also the beginning of the end. And that's why we need to be mindful of the loss of God, the loss of the Spirit that says, whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap. If you sow bad things, you will reap bad things. If you sow good things, then you will reap good things in your life. We don't have much choice, really. Either we fall into the hands of the living God and yield to Him, embrace His truth, embrace His commandments, and we will live well. We will have joy and we will have peace. And everything will be in perfect order. If we live by His grace, we live by His truth. But the moment we move away from His will, then we bring chaos, we bring disorder we bring confusion. We bring depression. We don't want that happening. And you can talk about death of fellowship with God. Now remember this. If you are genuinely saved, and that is something obviously that, that you yourself knows, I cannot, I cannot guess for you if you are saved or not. Only you would know. The Bible says the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. I don't know if you have that witness. But here's the thing. If you are genuinely saved, if you have a genuine relationship with God, you cannot lose that relationship. 
Once a son, always a son. Even a bad son will remain a son. But friends, you lose that intimacy, that communion, that fellowship. And that's something you would not want to lose. Because the presence of God means so much. And finally, death could even be physical. Remember what happened to the Corinthian saints when they disrespected the Lord's table? Paul said, some of you have become weak, some of you have become sick, and some of you sleep. Meaning to say, some of you have, di- some, some of you have died. I recall the story of this man who claimed to be a Christian. He bought all kinds of translations, NIV, NASB, Living Bible, all the translations. He bought it. He has it all in his library. At first, he was very passionate with the things of God until he met this movie starlet, got attracted to this woman, developed a relationship with this woman, could not get out of the trap that he put himself into. One day, he and this movie starlet were riding a plane, going somewhere, the plane crashed, killing instantly both this man and the movie starlet. Sometimes it can happen that way. Sometimes it can be that tragic. We would be fools to actually test the goodness or to presume on the goodness of God without understanding that He is also a God of justice. Many people have paid that terrible price. When you take a look at this particular passage, James was actually telling the story of three generations. Lust is the grandmother. Sin is the mother. Death is the daughter. And the grandfather, Satan himself. So when you try to summarize everything that we have discussed so far. It is made clear to us by James that temptation does not come from God. And when we fall, we only have our lust, our sinful nature to blame. And we need to be mindful that though God may forgive us, it doesn't mean that the consequences of our sins will be removed. David's family was a case. Nathan had warned David that from the time that he committed sin with Bathsheba, bloodshed was no longer going to leave his family. And that was what was happened. That was what happened. His daughter was raped by his own son. And the brother of this sister who was raped got back at that brother killed him. There was bloodshed. And later on, Absalom, the son who killed this other son, fled from the palace, was in hiding for some time, brought back again, 
but the hatred inside of his heart could not be quenched. And in anger, he attempted a coup d'etat against his own father. He could have succeeded if not for the covenant that God made with David. But eventually, this son, Absalom, whom he loved dearly, had to be killed in war. Think about the cost, the painful cost of remaining in sin. But let me just remind you, this is exactly the reason why Jesus came down and became flesh and died on the cross. Because he was thinking about you and me. He was thinking about our deliverance. He was thinking about our redemption. He was thinking about the fact that ultimately this death that we experience because of our sins would eventually end in the lake of fire. Nobody talks about hell nowadays. It's a subject matter that a lot of people are trying to avoid. Even preachers and pastors are avoiding this particular subject matter. But if there is one preacher who continually preached about hell, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Because being God, knowing that He Himself created not only heaven but also hell, He knew what people would be getting into. He knew what damnation would bring to the soul. It will be an eternal torment of hell. A fire that is not quenched. And knowing that, the Lord Jesus warned people talked about hell more than any other preacher because he knew exactly where man was going. But at the same time, he was telling them, I care for you. This is the reason why I came in the flesh, that my life would be a ransom for you, that in my death you might have life, that in my death you might have forgiveness of sins. That in my death, you would be delivered from the power of sin. And that later on, when the rapture takes place, when I come, when you die, you shall be brought into the gates of heaven. In a perfect place where there is no sin. Where we live with a perfect God and we live a perfect life. This is why Jesus died and paid for our sins. And for those of us who have Christ in our lives, we thank God we have been set free. Amen. We have been set free. And what a way to end this, considering that we will be having the Lord's table. And I appeal once again to those of you who do not have a relationship with Christ. The only way you can be saved from the gates of hell, the only way you could be saved from the power of sin, and you might be right now in the clutches of sin, and you want to, to be set free, and you don't know how. Maybe you're into drugs, and you're saying, I want to kick the habit. I can't. 
Or maybe you are in bondage to pornography, or maybe you're into an adulterous affair, and you want to be set free. Only Jesus can do that for you. Only He can forgive your sins. Only He can save your soul. No one else, nothing else, not even you. You cannot save yourself. Your good works will not work. It will never reach the standard of God, which is perfection. So I appeal to those of you who do not have Christ, because when we celebrate the Lord's table, we only celebrate it with those who have a relationship with Christ. Not that we are being discriminating, but only those who understand what the Lord's table means can celebrate it properly. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ nailed to the cross for our sins. The wine symbolizing the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses and washes all of our sins. So I appeal to you today who do not have Christ, receive Christ. Surrender to Christ. Make Him the Lord and Savior of your life. Believe in Him and in what He has done at the cross. Repent of your sins and He will change you by the power of the Holy Spirit. May I now request everybody to please bow their heads and close their eyes. And if there is anyone here who would like to make a commitment to Christ, you want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, you want eternal life, you want to be saved from the torment of hell, you can accept Christ now. Where you are, you can pray your own prayer. But maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't know how to pray. I can lead you. But this prayer will only be effective for you if you make it your own prayer, if it comes from the heart. I, I, cannot, I cannot possibly give you repentance. You yourself will have to repent by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to accept Christ today, right now, could you please raise up your right hand? Those who want to be led in prayer, yes, brother, amen. Anyone else? Yes, sister, amen. Anyone else? Aside from, yes, sister, amen. Anyone else? Aside from these hands, yes, another brother and another brother, amen. Another brother, amen for those hands. You can put them down right now. I'd like you to please Pray this prayer from your heart, please. Lord Jesus, I realize I cannot change myself nor save myself. To be saved, I have to be perfect, but I am not. But Lord Jesus, you made the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And through that perfect sacrifice, my past sins, my present sins, my future sins are all forgiven, all washed away, all wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. So I turn to you, Jesus. You're my only hope for salvation. 
You're my only hope that I might change. And I repent of all my sins. I believe in the power of the cross. I believe in the blood of Christ. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And I receive the free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.